Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. Thank you all for being here. I can't tell you how moved I was by that music. Uh, I didn't tell our brother Paul DeMano what the theme of this message was going to be. Uh, it comes from Hebrews chapter 8. He probably knew that. But he's not just a wonderful musician and, and uh, the head of the music ministry. He's also a deeply spiritual man with great spiritual wisdom, insight, and discernment, in my opinion. He picked the perfect songs for us to sing this morning. This morning, we are not only going to sing, as we just did, Behold Our God, seated on the throne, come let us adore him, but the passage itself has that main idea. Again, we found out as we began the heart of Hebrews, the pinnacle of the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 7 and chapter 8, this is the, a high point. It remains high throughout. Uh, chapters 9 and 10 as well, and 11, it starts to become more practical and focus more on us and gives us instruction that we can follow. But before that, it wants to lift our minds and our hearts up to the heavenlies where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hopefully today's message will help you to behold your God, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the Father's right hand in glory, interceding as our high priest for us. The writer to the Hebrews told us in chapter 5 that he wanted to say a lot more about Christ as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But he couldn't do that because by the time that they ought to have been teachers of God's word or known enough of God's word to actually instruct others, they were still babes. And instead of meat, they had come to need milk. And so he tries to correct them. And then he does go on to teaching, to meet for the mature regarding Christ as our high priest. And he's going to continue that teaching today in verses 1 through 6 that our brother read for us. And so... What are we to take away from today's message? We're to allow God's word to lift us up, not focus on ourselves, because that's what the immature do. That's what babies do. A newborn baby, they're wet, they're messy, they're cold, they're hot, they're hungry, something's poking them, they're in pain. Everything is only about them. But as an individual matures, Goldilocks didn't do too well. It's hot. It's too cold. Oh, this is just right. It was about her again. But hopefully as an adult, we start to focus on other things outside ourselves. That's a sign of maturity, whether it be emotional and, and uh, psychological maturity or spiritual maturity. The focus becomes more and more on Others, here in this passage, our focus is on an other, but that other has a capital O. 
It's Jesus Christ. And that's what this teaching in the previous couple of messages and this one is about. We are to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to see a show of hands of anyone who has never been to school, either public, private, or home school, who's never sat under a school teacher before. Okay, no surprise, no hands. Everyone has been instructed in school. And you know, at some point, as, as you grow and your mind develops, you get introduced into what are called abstract concepts. So a teacher might say, uh, you know, I was never a teacher. What do, uh, what do I know? But let's just say 10 to 12 years old. The teacher says, we all have to stick together on this. In unity, there is strength. Well, that's abstract. Show me a unity. Show me a strength. How much do they weigh? How big are they? No, they're abstract concepts. But to illustrate that to the young mind, the school teacher might employ an object lesson. She might take out a thread, a sewing thread, wrap it around a couple of number two lead pencils, and pull, and it snaps. Now she might take two pieces of sewing thread, wrap it around, pull it, it snaps. And three, and four, and up to 10 or 12, you know, uh, I, might, I might not be able to do 12, she might go to 20. Uh, Kevin Royds and her brother Adriano, you know, 200, and they're breaking them. But at some point, everyone is not going to be able to break that. See, that unity, their strength. Now, that's an object lesson. That's a picture of unity, there is strength. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, actually uses that one. One man may overcome another, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not soon broken. It's a biblical object lesson. What we are going to find out today is that the focus, the earthly focus, the tabernacle, was only an object lesson. Just like the thread is not unity, the thread, or even 200 of them, is not strength. They're thread. They have strength, but they're not strength. A photograph is an image of a person or a building or a beautiful scene, but it is not that scene. The photograph is not that person. It's just a picture of. It resembles that person. Sure, it's an 8 by 10 glossy, but the person's taller than 10 inches. See, some characteristics... Oh, two eyes, and no, oh yeah, that, that, that looks like Johnson. I wish it didn't, but it does. Okay, there's some similarity, but there's differences. It's shorter than I am, that 8 by 10 glossy. So there's differences as well. That's what we're going to find out. The tabernacle was only a pattern, only a picture, only an image of heavenly truth. The physical was to teach us about the spiritual. And that's the whole idea here. And the focal point of the tabernacle, aside from the Lord God's presence, was the high priest. And the writer has been discussing that Jesus Christ 
is our high priest. The title of today's message is Hold Fast to Christ, Your, your High Priest. It's the third part. In it, Christ is revealed as your high priest. If you've trusted in him for salvation, in what he did on the cross, when he shed his blood, bearing the sins of the world in his body on the cross, undergoing the wrath and judgment of God, shedding his precious life's blood, giving up his life and dying, and then three days later, rising from the dead. If that's what you're trusting in, then he is your high priest, your mediator between God and man. Christ is revealed as your high priest, who is the mediator of a better covenant. If you take only one thing away from today's message, be encouraged by this. God wants you to know that Christ is exalted to his right hand. He's not in the grave. The tomb is empty. He's been exalted to God's right hand. He's God's right hand man sitting in the throne with God. And he is your mediator. He's not some, just some man. He's much more. He is the very son of God. And he is your mediator who's made peace between God and you and intercedes for you, for none of us is free from sin. The tabernacle was a picture of all of these precious salvific truths. Let's begin digging into this passage and see that Christ ministers in a greater tabernacle. Remember, the, the goal of the writer to the Hebrews is to show that Christ is greater than everything. The recipients of that letter were Jewish believers in Christ. They turned from Judaism to serve the living and true God. They became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because of persecution, some of them had already turned away and gone back to Judaism as an acceptable substitute in their minds. Some were tempted to turn away because of persecution. And the writer is going to show Christ is greater than anything, not only Judaism, but any religious system has to offer, with the exception of true, biblical, Bible-based Christianity. Other religions are in the same category as Judaism. Christian cults in the same category as Judaism. False forms of Christianity are in the same category as Judaism. And we're going to see this come out in different ways. First, Christ ministers in a greater tabernacle. The word tabernacle simply means tent. It's a tent. That's what it means. Christ ministers in that greater tabernacle as a greater high priest. The writer says, now the main point in what has been said is this. Everything that he said, particularly chapter 7, but everything before was all leading up to a main point. He was laying a foundation for what he's about to tell us today and in the rest of this chapter. There was a main point. It all leads up. There was a flow of thought. And the thought was this. We have such a great high priest 
How great? He's greater than angels in chapter 1. He's greater than Joshua. His salvific rest is eternal and is a true rest, not the rest Joshua led them into in the land of Canaan. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the whole Levitical, Jewish Levitical system of sacrifice and priesthood. He's greater than the high priest of Judaism. He's greater than anything any other religion has to offer. We have such. He could have spent chapters listing every way that Christ is greater. He sums it all up in the word such. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The reader's mind exploded. It would have exploded in chapter 1. But if it didn't, it explodes now. These were Jews. They understood the Old Testament better than we do. They understood intimately the Jewish sacrificial system. They understood the priesthood and the high priest who made atonement every year on one day in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Those priests never sat down they stood every day offering animal sacrifices. The high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, never sat down. That would be sacrilege. That would be blasphemy. He was there to sprinkle blood as atonement. In fact, the Jews would tie a rope around one ankle of the high priest in case he did something wrong and the Lord struck him dead so they could haul him out because no one but the high priest was to go. And then not without blood, a sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. They never sat down. But here we have not just a Savior who has sat down, he specifically calls him the high priest. He's seated. He's done. He's finished. He's resting from the work of redemption. On the cross, he said in John 19, it is finished. The work of salvation is finished. You could translate that single Greek word that's translated it is finished. You could also translate it legitimately it has been completed. Something that's finished and complete, you cannot add to it. There's nothing you can add to it. No good work, no prayer, no giving, no penance, nothing. It's finished, it's done, it's complete. Receive it, accept it, believe it, trust it, live it. <coughs> Excuse me, my apologies. But Christ, when he said it is finished, after he ascended on high, 40 days after his resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
He's seated, it's done. That's the redemption part. The high priest had two key functions. One, to sprinkle to the blood of atonement, which involved redemption. Purchasing us out of the slave market of sin by paying the ransom price. That's what Christ did. The ransom price was his blood, his life. That was done. But we know just from David's message last week that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, speaking of Christ as our high priest, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he ever lives to make intercession for them. His intercessory work is not complete because we all still sin. But he's seated, brothers and sisters, he's seated there for you. You too can rest in his finished work if you haven't done that already. Trust in this glorious Savior. Behold our God. Adore him for what he did for you. Christ ministers in a greater sanctuary, a greater holy place. We have such a high priest, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. He ministers in the sanctum. He ministers in the holy place. He ministers in the sanctum sanctorum, the holy of holies. That's where the word sanctuary comes from. That word pictures the tabernacle of the Old Testament and King Herod's temple in Jerusalem that would replace it over a thousand years, over 1,500 years later. Christ is the minister, the priestly minister. That word minister has to do with priestly service. He's the priestly servant in the sanctuary. He's being called a priest here in the true tabernacle. It's not that the tabernacle on the earth was false. True here means actual, the real. What the earthly pattern, the earthly picture, the earthly image, the earthly type pointed to was the true tabernacle in heaven. Now, we're not necessarily meant to take that literally that there's some sort of spiritual tent with sides and a top with length and depth and breadth. It's the concepts that were taught in the earthly tabernacle. These are the spiritual truths of heaven that salvation is based upon. It says, which the Lord pitched, not man. As we've learned before, Jacob, Joseph's father, when we did a study of Joseph, his father Jacob had 12 sons. One of them, the, the third one, as I recall, was named Levi, Levi, or Levi. From Levi, the Jewish priests are descended from, and the Levites. Of his descendants, there were the priests and the Levites. The priests offered the sacrifices. 
They went into the holy place. The high priest went into the holy of holies one day a year. The Levites were entrusted with the physical care of the structure of the tabernacle. They set it up. They took it down in the wilderness. And then Israel marched. And then they set it up again. And they would take it down. Whether it be a day, a couple weeks, or a year. Sometimes they stayed in one place in a year, according to the scriptures. That's what it says. A day, a couple weeks, uh, a year. They stayed in different times and places. This is the Levites who pitched this tent, this tabernacle. But the true tabernacle the Lord has pitched in heaven. He's the one who set it up. He's the one who came up with this marvelous plan of salvation found only in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ, Christ himself said, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. He is the only path to God, the only entrance way to God. He is the narrow gate that everyone must enter by. The Lord pitches that tabernacle. To help us understand this, uh, our brother Tommy, uh, one of the elders here, said, you know, it'd really be helpful, especially to the newer believers, if there was more background given in, in your messages, Paul. It would help them understand these precious truths. So I have about four picture slides, and I want to show you what this tabernacle is and what was involved with it. Notice, all around the outside are the tents that the Jews lived in in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. It took them about two years to get from Egypt to the promised land, send out spies. They rejected uh, uh, the Lord's uh, encouragement and Joshua and Caleb's encouragement to enter the land and they disbelieved, distrusted in the Lord, and so they wandered for 38 more years in the wilderness. This is the tabernacle covered in a brown cloth. This white perimeter is the outer court. So the tabernacle, sometimes we refer to all of it as the tabernacle, and this the tabernacle proper, but this is really the tent. As you can see, this isn't a tent. There's no covering over it. It's not even a tarp. It's just sides, and here's the entrance. We see the bronze altar that sacrifices were offered by fire to Yahweh, to the Lord God. Uh, the bronze uh, washing vessel where they would wash their hands and forearms and be ceremonial clean to serve the Lord, to go into the tabernacle. The first row around the outer court, Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's son. These are the priests. One particular line descended from Levi. The other three first rows are their cousins, the Levites. Three different families, all cousins. And then Israel on the outside. Here's a better view. 
a bit more to scale. You can see the outer court, the entrance gate, uh, the bronze altar that sacrifices were offered on, and the bronze laver or washing pan, and then the tabernacle itself. There's some discussion over dimensions, but this could be about 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. What we don't see yet, and we'll see in another slide, is about two-thirds of the way back was a veil, which we know from the Gospels, Herod in the temple also put a veil, and that veil was rent in two, torn in two from top to bottom when Christ died, signifying that the way into the back third, the holy of holies, where the very presence of God was, is now open to all who would go by Jesus, enter by Jesus. So this is drawn or pictured pretty much to scale. This is not to scale, the courtyard's bigger, but it just shows you what's inside the tabernacle. Uh, the priests washing to be clean before they, they uh, enter and serve. Here is just the tabernacle itself, cut away. Part of the covering is, is not drawn in, so we can see what's inside. Two-thirds of it is the holy place. The back third is the holy of holies, the sanctum sanctorum. Here is the veil, and not all of it's drawn in. It would go all the way across and be all filled in and you wouldn't be able to see through it. Whereas the two pieces of furniture of the tabernacle, the brazen altar and the bronze altar or the bronze, and the bronze laver or washing pan were made of bronze or covered in bronze. Everything inside is made of gold. Some of it's wood overlaid in pure gold, but there's gold here. This is the golden lampstand that burned continually, day and night. Christ said, I am the light of the world. Everything in here pictures Christ. The study of the high priest's clothing, the study of the sacrifices, the seven sacrifices in Leviticus, the study of the tabernacle, the materials and how it's laid out all point to Christ and salvation. Christ is the light of the world. Here's the golden table of showbread. These are two stacks of round, unleavened bread. You just roll the dough out and bake it. There's no yeast added. There's no baking soda, baking powder. There's no leavening, leavening agent added. We know them today, and usually they're about this square. You can find them in the pantry in my home as matzahs. Okay, these are matzahs. These are round matzahs, unleavened bread. Christ in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This, the third piece of furniture 
in the holy place is the golden altar of incense, which symbolizes holy and pure prayers that our Lord uttered and his, the sweet savor. It's right before the Holy of Holies where God's Shekinah or Shekinah glory dwells over the mercy seat between the outstretched wings of the cherubim. This is right before the Lord. That incense going up is a sweet scent of the Lord's life in the nostrils, so to speak, of the Lord God, his Father. Jesus Christ said, I do always those things that please him. The Father said multiple times, this is my beloved Son. In the Davidic covenant, in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, it is prophesied of David's greatest Son, Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he will never displease the Lord God, his Father. God will be like a father to him and he will be like a son and he will never do anything wrong. I do always those things that please the Father, Christ said. Let's get a closer look at the last two pieces of furniture in the Holy of Holies. We have two outside in the courtyard, three here in the holy place, and just two more. This is the Ark of the Covenant which we all know from Indiana Jones, and the golden mercy seat with two cherubim with their wings outstretched guarding the holiness of God. And it's a little lighter here. That's the Shekinah glory. At night it appeared not only inside the Holy of Holies but over the tabernacle, over that tent as a pillar of fire. During the day, it appeared as this shimmering glow, so blinding that no one could look at it except one day a year, the high priest, when he entered to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. What's inside the ark? This box? Ark just means a box. You could call it the box. You know, how exciting is that? The box. The golden box. Oh, you know, this is the tab. It's called the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of it were three things the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Christ perfectly kept the law of God. Not only did not, he did not sin, he could not sin, being God of very God. The tablets of the Ten Commandments. Aaron's rod that budded, that produced flowers. A dead wooden staff or rod. Remember when Moses was sent back to Egypt to deliver the decree of Yahweh, the Lord God, to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Ha, ha, ha. He tells Aaron to throw his rod down and it becomes a snake and swallows up the snake's of the Egyptian magicians. That dead piece of wood sprouted flowers, sprouted life. Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he is dead, like that piece of wood, yet shall he live.
The other thing that was in there was a golden vessel of manna from the wilderness. What God provided every day for them to feed them in a desert wilderness. There was the golden jar or vessel, pot of manna. Christ, the bread of life, is the one who sustains the believer in Christ every day, just like manna did. And these are the wooden carrying poles. No one, not even the high priest, was allowed to touch the ark or the mercy seat or they would be struck dead. And that, no matter what their motive, how pure their motive was, like one man who sought to keep the ark from falling over because they were carrying it wrong on a cart instead of by those poles. Those poles, the Levites carried the ark and the mercy seat covered over with a cloth when they transported it by those poles so they would never have to touch. Look, this whole tabernacle is a picture of the holiness of God. You cannot approach God except by the sacrifice of Christ. You cannot enter the holy place except if you're a priest. And according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, you know who priests are? Every one of you who has trusted in Jesus Christ. Peter makes it very clear. You are a royal priesthood. Royal because you're in God's family. You've been adopted into the family of the king. You're a priest yourself to offer up spiritual sacrifices, to approach God directly. You don't need any man. You don't have to go through any preacher here, the elders here, anyone who has a title of minister or priest. It doesn't matter. You can go yourself. You are a priest. And then the high priest could only go with blood. If you even touch it, if you do anything wrong, God would strike them dead. This is how serious God takes his holiness. And there's, an, there's examples of that in the Bible. The whole tabernacle brings out God's holiness. He is serious about sin. We may not be, but he is. How do we know that? Look to the cross. His only begotten son. He put him to death. He sacrificed him for the sins of the world. His cousin, John the baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist. Baptists weren't around then. I like the term baptizer because he baptized people. He saw Jesus coming and he pointed to him. Behold, God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Not the lambs in the temple of Jerusalem. They never take away sin. And the writer's going to talk about that when we get to chapter 10. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices that could never take away sin. Do you know that according to the Old Testament that the sacrifices were only for sins committed accidentally or in ignorance? 
They were not for high-handed, rebellious, in-your-face God sin. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. Those daily sacrifices never took it away. The Day of Atonement was to show them that. But even that needed to be repeated year after year after year. What does he say, the writer, in chapter 1 regarding Jesus Christ? After he had made purification for sin, purification, the holy of holies, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only through him is there salvation. Christ is greater than everything. The Mosaic law is less because it would exclude the greater mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, if he, Christ, were on the earth, he would not be priest at all. And we saw that in previous messages. He came from the wrong tribe. He was of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, the kingly tribe. He was not of the tribe of Levi, where the priests came from. He wouldn't be able to be priest at all. But this earthly tabernacle, he didn't serve in that because he wasn't a priest or a Levite. But in the heavenly tabernacle, the true tabernacle, he is the high priest. He would not be a priest at all since there are those, the priests, the descendants of Aaron, Aaron being the first high priest, the descendants of Aaron, who are those who offer the gifts according to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law would exclude Christ as mediator. And what were they going to turn back to? What are you left with if you turn away from the one who is the only true high priest? You're left with daily sacrifices. You're left with confession to a man in some false systems of Christianity. You're left with doing penance when Christ paid it all. You're left sometimes in that penance with praying to someone other than God and Christ. You're left with nothing. It doesn't take away sin. Nothing we do, nothing we say, nothing we give. There is no gospel of good works. That is, there is no salvation by good works. There is no gospel of prayers. That is to say, there is no salvation of prayers. There is no gospel of giving. There is no gospel of martyrdom. We're not jihadists like in Islam. There is no salvation except through trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. The Mosaic law is less because it is only a shadow of the greater. You know what a shadow is? You know, if the sun's just right, one of these directions, east and west, and it shines on me, I look behind, eight feet. Eat your heart out, Gilson. Okay? The shadow's not real. I'm real. I'm the true. The shadow is just a a resemblance. You know, it looks like me. It's black. It's flat. I wish I were flatter. But be that as it may, The Mosaic law is only a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. Those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy 
and a shadow of the heavenly things, the heavenly tabernacle that he had just been talking about. It's less because that's just a shadow. That's the object lesson. The important lesson is from the school teacher is in unity there is strength. The illustration, the shadow, the pattern, the type, the picture of the threads being twined together until it can't be broken. That's not unity. The important thing is living out unity, not whether or not you can break the strings. That's not the point of the lesson. That's not the point of the earthly tabernacle. It's to show the holiness of God and the salvation only comes through God's lamb that he provides, not the lambs that I bring to be sacrificed. The Mosaic law is less because its tabernacle is just a pattern. It's just a picture. Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern, the type, which was shown you on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, where the law was given. And not just the Ten Commandments, a lot of what you read, well, all that you read pretty much in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, some of Numbers, some of it occurred afterwards, the 38 years plus afterwards in Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's just a pattern. It's just a picture that God showed him. He couldn't show him the heavenly. Even Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He was speaking of himself who was caught up to the third heaven. In Judaism, in in Jewish theology, there are three heavens. The sky, the home of the birds and the clouds. Outer space, the home of the stars. And the third heaven, the home of God. Paul was caught up to the third heaven and he beheld things. He experienced things that a man should not experience. No person should experience. And as a result, to keep him from exalting himself, he was given a thorn in the flesh or a messenger of Satan to buffet him, lest he exalt himself because of the glory of what he saw there. He couldn't even put it into words. He was forbidden to put it into words. Christ also offers a greater sacrifice. He ministers in a greater tabernacle, So he's a greater high priest. He offered a greater sacrifice. The Jewish priests and even the high priest offered animals, lambs and goats. Could be a bird, a pigeon or a turtle dove. It could be an ox. Christ offers the greatest sacrifice of all. He offered himself on behalf of the sins of the world. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts, free will offerings of particular types that are explained in Leviticus, and sacrifices for sins committed in ignorance. So it is necessary for this high priest, Jesus Christ also, to have something to offer. He offered himself. He experienced the wrath and judgment of God on the cross. He was on the cross from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. At noontime, after three hours, everything went dark, miraculously dark, 
all light was extinguished. Theologians speculate that it was at that point, as Paul would write, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might have the opportunity to become righteousness in Christ, not in ourselves, but in him, that the righteousness of Christ might be applied to everyone who believes. And at the end of those three hours of darkness, at three in the afternoon before he said, it is finished, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that out so that you and I would never have to cry out those words. Because God is holy as the tabernacle shows, he will judge sin. In preaching to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising that man from the dead, Jesus Christ. There is a coming judgment, but God's provided the way. Either we can accept God's judgment on Christ for our sins, or we bear the judgment ourselves. He cried out those awful words that God had forsaken him so that you and I would never have to cry them out. Trust in him. He will not be your coming judge. He'll be your coming bridegroom, to use the analogy that Scripture uses of the true church as his bride and him being the bridegroom coming. Christ is a greater mediator of a greater covenant. Christ is a greater mediator because he has a greater ministry. But he now has obtained a more excellent ministry. A mediator is just someone who brings two parties together. Even in our legal system. Uh, sadly, uh, some couples experience the grief and heartache of divorce. They may choose, in some states they can choose, not to go before a judge, but to sit down in private with a mediator, who in some cases tries to bring them together, and then failing that, tries to make as much peace as possible. Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator for all of those who will trust in him. He never fails. He brings about peace between God and man. And he maintains that peace by interceding. He has a greater ministry because he mediates a greater covenant. He's obtained a more excellent ministry. How so? By as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, a better or greater covenant. If you recall from when we covered the life of Abraham together, I believe it was our brother Gilson who uh, preached that message. If not, it was David. It wasn't me. Every covenant is enacted upon promises. And in those days, blood was spilled as well as a sign of the seriousness of those promises. What were the promises of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant? What were the promises? 
God wanted all the Jews to be a kingdom of priests. The Christian is, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. You're a royal priesthood, Peter writes. He wanted the Jews to be that way, the whole nation. But they were afraid to go near Mount Sinai because of the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes. And they told Moses, you go. And then they bound themselves by an oath three times. All that the Lord says we will do, all that the Lord says we will do, all that the Lord says we will do. And then what do they do? They make a golden calf, something the Lord didn't say to do, something the Lord should uh, forbid in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods but me, but Yahweh. The promises of the Old Covenant were the promises of a man, of men, of women, of whoever wanted to be involved in that covenant. And that promise was all that the Lord says we will do. Paul writing in Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means me, it means you. No one's kept that promise. All that the Lord says we will do. But this is a better covenant because it's enacted upon better promises. The promises from the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's God's promise. He doesn't ask you to do anything. You don't have to crawl on your knees anywhere. You don't have to flagellate yourself on certain holidays like they do in some parts of the world. South America and the Philippines in particular. God has promised. Believe. Believe. And he gave the Jews a picture that in the wilderness in Numbers 21. All they had to do was look to the bronze serpent and they would be healed if they had been bitten by the poisonous snakes. Just look. Trust. Believe that that will save you with your whole heart. The whole Old Testament points to Christ. It reveals Jesus Christ. Behold our God. And when you behold him, brothers and sisters, does not your heart adore him? Doesn't it love him for who he is and for what he's done? In conclusion, Christ is revealed as your high priest who is the mediator of a better covenant. God wants you to know that Christ is exalted to his right hand and he's your mediator. He's there for you. He's able to save you forever if you draw near to God for salvation through Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you with this. Today, will you understand that only Jesus can be your high priest and mediator with God? No one else can bring you near God and make peace between you and your God. And will you begin to trust in Jesus to keep your salvation secure? He provided it perfectly. He keeps it perfectly. You cannot be lost. He's interceding for you. Trust in Him. I I hope that this message had something for even the newest believers in Christ that, that you realize that 
at some point, if not already, you need to be consumed by the Lord Jesus. Adore Him. Uh, you might be thinking, oh, Paul, you've been a Christian a long time. I, you know, as long, you know, when Methuselah was in Pampers, okay? It doesn't matter. You remember what it was like when you were first saved? When the fires of your first love burned brightly? You were excited and thrilled about everything that had to do with Jesus. Oh, there's a Bible study. Oh, they're singing hymns. Oh, they're gathering together to pray and worship the Lord. You didn't miss it. That's the way our entire Christian experience should be. Has that been my entire Christian experience? No. No, it's not. It hasn't been. But it ought to have been, both for me and for you. Come, adore him. Behold your God, your high priest, your mediator. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the power of your word. Oh, we thank you even more for the living word, your beloved son, the word of God, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our high priest. We thank you for offering the only sacrifice that would permanently and completely remove sin, yourself. We thank you for your blood. Oh, Lord, would you be pleased in these coming days till you come for us? Would you be pleased to fill our hearts with adoration for you? Help us to behold you seated on the throne. Dear God, give us this understanding, this vision, so to speak, this clarity of thought, this pure devotion of heart so that we bring you honor and glory by our thoughts, by our words, by our desires, by the way we live. May we too, because of you and by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.